I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review and Maris Prizeman, and I am so delighted to be joined today by Tanya James. She's the author of the novel The Tusk That Did the Damage, an Atlas of Unknowns, and the short story collection Aerograms. She lives in Washington, D.C., and her latest novel is called Loot. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you, Maris. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Tanya, I, I, love I think show. I... Oh. I think I um, kind of use the term automaton so often in a derogatory way that I forgot that that could have been a cool thing at one point. And so you're writing about a time when automata was uh, a cutting edge technology. Tell me how yeah. you got into that. Tell me, tell me the whole thing. Yeah, I. That's interesting that you use automaton as a, a slur. <laughs> I'm trying to work that into my <laughs> into my vocab. But um, I think that probably the way people thought about automatons at that time is sort of maybe similar to a, to, to the way we think of AI to some extent. That there was this fear about playing God. I mean, there's the kind of you know uh, religious fear, but there was also a kind of fear of industrialization and all these kind of people whose work whose livelihoods were by their hands and they could be replaced by these automatons who there there are these sophisticated ones that could that were popular in Europe in the 1600s and 1700s and um they could you know play a flute like a lady could play a flute and her mouth was very I mean looked very like you know uh pretty accurate simulation of a an actual person's mouth and um just like really really sophisticated automaton. And I discovered this one, Tipu's Tiger, 
in a book. And I was struck by, first of all, it was, it's not very sophisticated looking in the way that these other ones are, these European ones. It's a bit of a six foot wooden uh, mechanical tiger that's sort of mauling the throat of an English soldier. And the soldier doesn't have a very realistic face. He's just kind of like round eyes and like a kind of sad, um, sort of like a jack-o'-lantern face, you know, but, but there's something about the, the comedy of it, the dark comedy of it that felt very contemporary. And um, I was just really, I was drawn to it. I, I just thought there's something about this um, anti-colonialist um, irreverence that I was, I'd never seen before. And I still haven't seen anything like it um, from that time. So I wanted to investigate it. Amazing. And so much of it, of much of of your novel is is based on um, fact, um, but you of course fictionalize some of the characters. But I'm wondering if you could take us into the history a little bit um, about Tipu Sultan. Yeah, so Tipu Sultan was the ruler of Mysore um, around uh, the end of the 1800s, and he uh, basically at that point it was sort of a hinge moment in the history of British empire, because until that time they had control of the North and the East, but only around 9% of the land mass, which is not that much, but, um, but they really wanted the Southern peninsula and he, and maybe one other faction was standing in their way. So they fought a total of four wars and, um, and he and his father, Hyder Ali, they were extremely strategic and sort of visionary in the way that they copied French military tactics. That's why they were able to kind of, um, you know, get as far as it did. But ultimately, the British East India Company, the British forces um, in the the final fourth and final war, they destroyed the capital city. They took out Mysore completely. And um, that was the sort of turning point for the British East India Company, because after that, they became the sort of a, this aggressive um, capitalist sort of superpower and um, and so the novel kind of begins at that turning point um, with Tipu Sultan kind of grasping at this these kind of last draws of power. Absolutely. I, I sort of love that part of his idea, uh, along with borrowing French military strategy, is um, like actually looking at trying to help his um, fellow community members um learn from the English and the French and with the hopes that one day they could surpass uh, and that seems like where Abbas comes in yeah I I was there's not a whole lot written about Tipu Sultan I mean there's not a whole lot of his own writing about himself or his speeches or anything like that but the fact that he came up with rockets and the fact that he came up with all kinds of I mean, he had all these just visionary ideas about what what his kingdom could be and what they could do. So it helped me kind of shape this idea of a guy who was on the one hand, very brutal, had a lot of, um, you know, weaknesses as a ruler in terms of that sort of violence and unnecessarily, unnecessary ruthlessness. On the other hand, he really was um, interested in technology. And so he, he actually did have commissioned this kind of strange automaton, um, and so then I thought I was I was actually the novel doesn't focus so much on him as the automaton itself. And I kept thinking I'd love to write 
like a Jim Shepard-esque, Hilary Mantel-esque kind of you know, deeply researched novel about the makers of this automaton. And then I quickly came to realize I, that, that we have no idea who made this automaton. Um, we know it's probably a combination or a collaboration between a French clockmaker or engineer and a, and a local woodcarver. And so that's, I just kind of came up with this character out of thin air, really. I, I mean, and, and I love him. Yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about one of my, one of the, my favorite things in, in this book is that there are little sketch drawings, which is so important when um, there's something visual being uh, brought to, to life. Um, tell me about them. Did you drop them? I I can take partial credit. Well, first of all, thank you for asking me about those. I nobody's asking me about those. I I just have you read um David Mitchell's novel, The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoe? No. No. This, yeah, it's like it's a really wild, like it's historical fiction set in seventeen ninety nine in Dejima in um Japan and, and it's, you know, sort of uh following um somebody who's in the company of the Dutch East Indies. But he has these just like two or three images throughout the novel. And I love the way the image kind of, I don't know what it is. It's hard to kind of articulate the effect that those had on me because it does take you out of the text. It does take you out of the project of mentally imagining what's going on. But at the same time, I think that there's an element of playfulness to it, a yeah. kind of like meta textuality and I just kept thinking, I know I'm writing about heavy stuff, but I want to have fun. How can I have fun with this material? And images are just a way to do that. So the first, I think the first image is Abbas drawing a sketch of the automaton. And it's a kind of pivotal moment because he doesn't yet trust himself to be able to do this. He's very afraid of making a mistake. And so it was just another way it's also a way to kind of suspend time because the reader has to pause and look at this thing before they continuing they're continuing on reading. So a lot of that was just me tracing over images I had found. There's another huge automaton called the Elephant Clock, and I was just tracing over, you know, someone else's image. But um, yeah, it's just another way to kind of inject a little bit of something unexpected. Um, and to slow us down. And it, it just sort of also reminded me of children's, not children's books, but you know, there's that style of um, like 1800s kind of like novels where you'll see like a little sketch or hit a corner and it's just a, another place for your eye and your mind to go. I love that. And I, I, I like that. I'm assuming you made this up for him and that's wonderful. That one of the reasons that Tipu Sultan wants this elephant clock to be made, he says, is to provoke among the masses a sense of awe and its close cousin, obedience. And that is such a powerful description of what Duff can do. Yeah, I think he really was into, he didn't actually, I don't think he actually commissioned the elephant clock. I, I kind of created this moment, but I got but, it. I think he would have really responded to that object. That was uh, created and designed by 12th century um, uh, Muslim polymath. His name is Al-Jazari, and he is well-known, I think, in the Arab world, but I don't know. I mean, I didn't know about him. 
But when I discovered this thing, this was a whole other world of automatons that I had not read about. I had only associated automatons with Europe. Um, but here he was doing it in the 1100s. And I think that Tipu Sultan would have been really attracted to this idea behind the elephant clock, which is that each part of it represents a certain part of civilization, but none of those civilizations he's mentioning are European. And so I, I felt like that he would have been really attracted to, though I didn't find that anywhere in historical record. I just made that up that he had that commission. <laughs> I love that. And yeah, you create this tension in this first part of the book and second in that we don't know who to trust. Uh, he doesn't know who to trust. Um, are the French allies? Uh, will, will they be betrayed? And then tell me about the political climate, I guess, um, when, as we begin. Well, in the beginning of the novel, um, France is, uh, Tipu Sultan is constantly asking for help from France to aid him and give him money and give him soldiers um, to fend off the British. He knows that, that you know, they, there's a bit of stasis between the Third and Fourth War, but he um, is prepared to kind of confront the British one more time. And so... Um, so he has a lot of French. He has a lot of French um, expats at his court. He has a lot of French engineers and people who can, you know, he he was really he was really trying to build up a navy. Even uh, nobody had ever done that in India at the time. So by the time at that point, then uh, in 1799, um, once Tipu is defeated, Abbas himself he attempts to leave India, and he. I think he doesn't anticipate how how complicated leaving will will be, and so he joins he joins a um, East India Company ship as a carpenter, but he actually winds up on a, pi a French pirate ship um, and is sort of conscripted or you know pressed into labor on a yeah. French ship, and so he kind of plays all these. He he's not. I think one of the things he comes to feel strongly by the end of this journey. Um, before, by the time he gets to England, is that it's every man for himself. There's no such thing as being as this is my national identity, and I'm from here, and I I'm loyal to this country, this nation. It, it, it he really does not. He comes to not care about any of that. Whereas at the beginning of the novel, he cares pretty deeply about being loyal to Tipu Sultan. Absolutely, and 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 so one of the things that you do in this novel. Um, is you give him such wonderful relationships, um, and so in the in the, at the start, he is um, kind of mentored by Monsieur Dulez, and um, it's a friendship that evolves over only a you know thirty or forty pages or so, but but you really feel it. Hmm. Tell me tell me about them. I mean, I, I felt like all of the characters, all of the, the characters whose consciousnesses I was interested in, they're all ostracized in some way, or they're secretly, they somehow feel outside of the world that they're a part of. He is um, a clockmaker and a maker of automatons. He arrives at Tipu's court because Tipu invites, uh, he wants clockmakers to come from France. So Louis XVI sends him. But by the time he gets to India, soon after that, 
there's the French Revolution and and subsequently a law that is that was an actual law that was passed that banned French, especially you know royalist French people or aristocrats from coming back to France. And so he's sort of exiled and sort of stranded in Fran- uh, in um, Mysore for a long time. And he doesn't quite fit in with the other expats and because he's somewhat closer to Tipu Sultan. And so he doesn't stay where the other expats and soldiers stay. He, he kind of has his own apartment. And he, I think he's just has this sort of, I think he has a sort of artistic um, lonerness about him. And he sees something in Abbas. He doesn't know for sure if Abbas is that talented. He kind of takes a chance on him. But then I think I think Abbas comes to save his life in a way. And um, they become kind of mutually indebted to one another. I, I really like, I have not seen so much this relationship in fiction of the mentor. I feel like I see it in film. And maybe it's a kind of archetypal relationship mm-hmm. in film. And maybe it's just simply what I've been drawn to lately. And and But I... I was interested in that relationship between mentor and mentee. And some of it is not, it, it's not entirely pure all the time. I think Abbas at one point thinks, um, is thinking of, of Dulez in, in a sense, like in a gr- almost greedy kind of sense, like I want what you have. I had a friend, he was, a, he was, um, he was 15 and he, was, he just saw somebody doing capoeira in the street. And he just was so mesmerized by it. And he became that person's student. And he he basically said to him, I want what you have. And he now is a capoeira teacher himself. But I just took that one line. I was like, that's really what it boils down to a lot of the times. It's as a younger person or as a novice, you look at that that person who has seems to have mastered and have such confidence and you want it so badly. Um, that felt so one of those kind of personal ways into character for me. Absolutely. And even just the, I mean, the metaphor of um, making a clock or repairing a clock um, seems like it's the kind of thing where you have to be so, what's the word I'm looking for? I follow that metaphor. They do have to like kind of be very still and rigorous. and And it seems like there's this great tension between what is this stuff? This is just stuff. And Abbas's wish to create something that will last. And people don't last. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine having that kind of ambition to make a thing that will outlast me. Maybe that's because we're a product of our time. Everything seems more ephemeral now than it ever has. Mm -hmm. But um, I think he is maybe a product of his times. And he's, you know... I think one of the first things that he encounters in the novel that makes him feel that way is a verse from a poet, which was an actual verse from an actual poet. And it just, I think it's just, that it just works some kind of magic on him. And he wants to replicate that feeling in some someone else, that kind of feeling of wonder. I think as the novel goes on, he becomes, you know, um, almost irrationally attached to this object that he made. But by the end of the novel, he, I think he comes to really have to, he has to sort of come back to that sense of wonder, which has not so much to do with the thing that was made, but more the feeling of boundlessness, that you're on the verge of something, that that, that is where the spirit of artistry kind of lies. 
I love that. And and then of course, um, on the opposite end of the spectrum is Lady Selwyn, who is such a fun character to read. And and she's like the stereotypical European woman who likes to exoticize everything. I mean, the term is Orientalism. Tell me, tell me about her. I think that I did begin from that stereotype. I really, she was just a fun way for me to make fun of a certain type of person. Um, I, I, I also, I just enjoyed the voice. The voice kind of changes a little bit depending on whose perspective it is. And I felt like when I was near her consciousness, I was, I was inhabiting some other personality almost like I I was reading this book by Virginia Woolf that isn't that popular I think but it's called Flush and it's a biography of her dog yep I was it's so (laughs) funny like she's so funny um but most of what I read of hers is not funny but I I I mean I love Mrs. Dalloway but I I thought Flush really had this kind of pomposity about it and but self-aware pomposity that I I really liked and I also just thought, I knew that there was something, the two things for me that felt like doorways into her character were the fact that she smokes these strange pipes, these kind of manly pipes um, called meerschaums. It just was the kind of idiosyncrasy that I, it it made her a little more interesting. But then also that she is a novelist of, of her own. And in that way, I think she is, again, something of a, um, ostracized person and that well at least ostracized in her own mind because she can never share it with anybody she can't let anybody know that she's written a romance novel because that would put her you know reputation at risk and um she's a sort of wealthy kind of dowager type of lady she can't be considered unserious in that way so i in some ways i feel like all of these characters are you know unable to kind of express something that's essential about them and that's sort of something they chafe against Absolutely. And I, one of the nicest surprises in the book is that Jahan reads this novel and loves it. Yeah. I would, I was just, I mean, if you're doing a stereotypical thing, she would have written something awful. <laughs> and the idea that they could both, you know, they they have some things in common. Yeah. But it's still kind of a revelation. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Thank you for observing that. I kind of felt like if if it was a bad novel, she'd just be a fool not to be taken seriously. And I I think, you know, by a certain point, if I'm going to invest in someone in writing from their perspective, I, I want them to have some dignity. I mean, they can be foul in every way. They can be, you know, kind of unlikable, whatever. But I, I feel like dignity is something important. And I I liked giving her the dignity of not not of being actually right about her her value as a writer. She might be wrong about herself in every other way, <laughs> but in this one way, you know, and 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 sort of the one person who she has a romantic attachment to just refuses to see it and can't see it because in some ways, I mean, it is orient and orientalist. She's a product of her time. She's written a romance novel in which he falls in love with a you know. I don't know. I think he's a genie or something. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I mean, it's kind of silly on on the surface, but but for the times, it's like a it's a pretty sexy novel, and um, 
And it's sort of sad to her that of all the things she owns, all her collections, all her books, she can't put her own work on the on display. And and, and of course, there's something alluring there for Jehan too. It, I'm I'm thinking about how we spent this entire time talking. We haven't gotten to her yet, <laughs> and how to. So I I'm not going to try to trace my way to her and all of the steps she takes. But you do draw out this this budding relationship that she seems to have with a boss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at first I was writing, I was like, is this is this realistic that she meets him when she's something like 14 or something. And from the moment she meets him, she just never forgets him. But then I thought, I don't know. I, I actually think that that's possible. And she goes through such an extraordinary and kind of, you know, traumatic number of experiences being she's she's born to a French expat engineer and a um, Mysorean woman who dies um, in childbirth. And she is taken to France. She basically knows, you know, is friends with no one there, is made fun of for being half Indian and doesn't really find, you know, um, doesn't really find a, a peer in this world until a bus suddenly shows up on her doorstep. And I thought that itself is so magical to kind of re-encounter him again so many years later. And I thought maybe, you know, maybe in this world it is possible that to to see someone, you know, from from you know, 20 years ago or so many years ago. And I think it's probably realistic, I think, to have this sudden intimate, you know, connection. And I think of her as an artist, but sort of the more kind of pragmatic of the two. Like she's romantic, but she's also pragmatic about, um, you know, her art and wanting to make it be commercial and sellable and wanting to live and just get by. But one of the first things that a boss does for her um is make her a top um toy and I, I found that you could like really see her holding on to that sense of wonder and possibility yeah, yeah. um to the point where 20 years later they're the same people yeah you're so right i think she's pragmatic in her work but not about about her really like her dreams of you know of finding you know um finding family in him and i'm trying to think how to ask you this because i don't want to jahan and abbas plot something of a heist and it doesn't go according to plan as heists are wont to do <laughs> and so i'm wondering one if like putting them in lady selwyn's home what kinds of contrasts you can make what we find out about Abbas and Jahan for, just from from being in the presence of this succubus, I would say. <laughs> and then we don't have to get into the actual action of it. It's very good. You'll have to read it, <laughs> listeners. Well, one thing that's interested me is the hierarchy of the English country house. And it's like a <laughs> literal hierarchy. Like there's certain people, people, I mean, as we all know from Downton Abbey, certain people live upstairs and certain people live downstairs. And Rum, who is Lady Selwyn's secret romantic partner, he's also from India. He's from South India. And he is her steward. He's sort of her second in command. He he sort of occupies this in-between space because he's having this secret affair with her. And then so Jeanne is on the upstairs because she's, you know, a visitor and she's kind of pretending to be a lady. And 
uh, a boss is downstairs in the cloisters with all the other servants. And I just thought there's something about all of these people being on different levels, conspiring in different ways. So Jeanne and Lady Selwyn have their own kind of relationship that Rum is worried about because he imagines himself being displaced. But And then Abbas and Rum are connecting because of their shared um, backgrounds. And I just thought there's a way in which the house is the central, the sort of succubus is still there. The automaton is still kind of the their focus. But in some ways, it's it's creating all these other strange kind of chess moves in the house. And they're all contained to the house. There's nowhere else to go. So I I kind of liked how in the first half of the novel, kind of moving across time and countries and and oceans, and then suddenly the novel sort of contracts yeah. and tightens it, its focus. Um, I thought, I wasn't sure. At first I thought, does this feel like different novels in one novel? But I just sort of, I just sort of went with it and hoped that the reader would come along with me. Sure did. (laughs) (laughs) Tanya, thank you so much. Before we go, would you please recommend some books for us? I would love to. Okay, so um, I've been, I don't know about you, Maris, my brain has been, I've been sort of fractured and all over the place. And I've been looking for a novel to kind of swallow me whole. And I don't know why. I just thought maybe not short stories right now. But then I picked up this book, Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century by Kim Fu. Oh, my gosh. The first story, it is, it knocked me out. I can't. It's called Pre-Simulation Consultation. And it's basically about grief and, you know, someone grieving their mother. But it's also about you know, about wanting to enter a simulation with their mother. And it's entirely dialogue. I mean, I feel almost kind of um, proselytizing about this this one. And I've only read the first story, so I'm excited about it. Perfect. Um, another novel I loved was Our Country Friends by Gary Steingart. Did you read that one? I did. Ooh. I did. Oh, my God. It's so funny and a heartbreaker. And why am I not surprised? But um, I also read um, Breakup. Um, which is a memoir by Anjan Sundaram. And he is a war correspondent, uh, or he was at the time of this writing, in Central African Republic. And he is basically about this sort of um, the moral responsibility of being a war correspondent when you when he also had a, wa- a wife and young child at home in Canada and sort of being torn between these two things. So, I mean, he's just, it's really, really gripping. Um, and... Yeah, those are my three. I love it. Tanya, thank you so much. Loot is out now. Thank you, Maris. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.